This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the story behind the headlines as it aired over NBC on December 4th, 1943. The weekly series featured Caesar Searchinger with analysis on recent developments in the war. This episode focuses on the recent Allied conferences in Cairo and Tehran. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The story behind the headlines. Every Saturday at this time, the National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the American Historical Association, presents Caesar Searchinger in his historical analysis of outstanding news events and major trends in world affairs. Today, Mr. Searchinger's subject is Cairo and Tehran. Caesar Searchinger. Good afternoon, everybody. The Roosevelt Churchill John Kaishek Conference at Cairo was the eighth official meeting of Allied leaders since the attack on Pearl Harbor, which occurred just two years ago, lacking three days. The Roosevelt-Churchill-Stalin conference, which has now definitely taken place at Tehran, is the ninth. If we include the visit of Mr. Churchill to Moscow in the fall of 1942, we have a record of ten inter-allied or United Nations conferences, which, like so many milestones, mark the progress of the war against the Axis powers. The Prime Minister will have attended nine, President Roosevelt eight, Marshal Stalin two, and President Chiang Kai-shek one. In these last two conferences in Egypt and Iran, we have seen the joint supreme leadership of the war, as distinct from the separate national leaderships, broaden from the big two to the big four. For although Stalin and Chiang have not yet formally taken part in one and the same conference, they have sat in on each other by proxy and their personal meeting is postponed merely because the war is still divided into two areas, west and east. But it's clear from the decisions taken at Cairo that Stalin must have been consulted in advance. As I look at the mental picture of the big four who, as far as we can now see, will shape the post-war world, a contrasting picture of a somewhat lesser big four flashes across my mind. That is the picture of Chamberlain, Hitler, Mussolini and Daladier at Munich in 1938, blithely arranging for what we were told was peace in our time. I'm also reminded of a cartoon which appeared at the time in the London press. 
It is by that astute and sometimes prophetic artist, David Lowe. It pictured the four men, two dictators and two prime ministers, sitting round the table, settling the fate of the world. And in the background stood the peasant-like figure of Joseph Stalin in top boots, stroking his moustache with a sardonic smile and saying, What? No chair for me? I've kept that cartoon all these five years just to see how it would look at some such date as today. For today, Joe Stalin is not only one of the bigger big four, but in some respects, the key man. The very idea of any of us five years ago, looking upon those four puny Europeans as the big four of the world, strikes us as ludicrous today. How could anyone think that their decisions could have any lasting validity, decisions taken without consulting two of the most powerful nations in the world? Well, in that particular respect, the world has learned its lesson. Today, at any rate, we include not only Russia and the United States, but China. For China, with its almost 500 million people, is potentially one of the really great powers of the world. Anyone with a flair for history may conjure up another comparison. For there was an even earlier Big Four that held the fate of the world in its hands at the end of the First World War. It consisted of President Wilson and Premiers Lloyd George, Orlando and Clemenceau. That Big Four constituted itself the Supreme Council at the Conference of Versailles and proceeded to make all the important decisions regarding the peace terms to be imposed on the Central Powers. But pretty soon, one of the four, the Italian Premier Orlando, left the conference in a huff because Woodrow Wilson had appealed to the Italian people over his head. And thereafter, the decisions were taken not by the Big Four, but the Big Three, Clemenceau, nicknamed the Tiger because of his ferocious fighting qualities in debate, Lloyd George, the nimble-minded realist and compromiser, and Wilson, the evangelist of world unity and peace. The diversity of their characters and interests made it certain that the Treaty of Versailles would be a hodgepodge of idealism, vindictiveness, and political expediency, something that would satisfy nobody and settle nothing for long. Marshal Foch, commenting on the situation, said this, Let the armies stand at ease. The war is postponed for 20 years. That was in 1919. War broke out again in 1939. 20 years. Now, some say the peace didn't last because it was too soft. Some say it was too harsh. Whether it was too soft or too harsh, it failed. Why? Because it did not correspond to reality, to the inexorable laws of gravity and force. Russia was excluded in advance. Then the United States withdrew into its isolationist shell. The Big Three became the Big Two, Britain and France, and they eventually ceased to agree, setting out in search of new partners or friends. In any case, they did not represent the peoples of the world any better than those ridiculous Big Four that were to meet at Munich in 1938. The Big Four of today certainly do represent the great powers, the mightiest physical forces in the world, actual and potential, now and after the war. Whether they represent truly and fully the great moral forces of the world, the aspirations of the great and little nations, the hopes and dreams of the little men all over the world, only the future can reveal. When we first read the Atlantic Charter in August 1941, the idealists among us were thrilled. It had some of the old Wilsonian ring. It stirred anew the hopes of a better world. It promised not merely retribution, but justice, justice for all in this erring world. 
Today, much of that crusading spirit has given way to a new short-range realism. Wrongs are still to be righted, but they are chiefly the wrongs of our enemies, back to a carefully chosen date. If, for instance, we read the Cairo Declaration carefully, we find that Japan is to be punished for her aggressions and stripped of all the territories she occupied since 1895. That includes the formerly independent Kingdom of Korea, annexed by Japan in 1910. It includes the Kwandung Peninsula, seized in 1898. It includes Manchuria, with its almost 40 million people, subjugated by Japan since 1931. And, of course, it includes the hundreds of Pacific islands entrusted to Japan by the League of Nations as mandated territories after the First World War. Above all, it includes all the Chinese territories occupied during the First World War and overrun during the present war. But nothing is said about the former Chinese territories seized by other countries back to 1842, such as Indochina and Hong Kong. Nothing is said, moreover, about the vast territories of the Netherlands Indies, some of whose populations are as ripe for self-government as are the Philippines. And nothing is said about the South Pacific Islands that were German before 1918. Finally, nothing is said about Japan herself, except that she is to be returned to her old isolation, deprived of the means of developing as a modern industrial power. There is no hint of any compensating arrangements whereby Japan might become a peaceful factor in an economically integrated world. The paramount fact emerging from the Cairo Declaration is a vast and radical reshuffling of power in the Far East. It means a revolutionary change in the policy of the Western powers, who for the past half centuries have looked to Japan as the stabilizing factor in the Pacific world. It was Japan who became the first great modern power in the East, having defeated both Imperial China and the Russia of the Tsars. It was Japan who became the great ally of Britain by the Treaty of 1902. It was Japan who was permitted to get a strong foothold on the continent of Asia by annexing Korea and Guangdong. It was Japan who succeeded to the German territorial holdings in China and who was given the mandates over the strategic islands of the Central Pacific after the First World War. In the Washington Treaties of 1922, Britain and the United States pledged themselves not to fortify their island bases east of Singapore and west of Hawaii. Yet they did not prevent Japan from illegally fortifying hers. This made Japan indubitably the dominant power in the East. It also foredoomed China, either to eventual partition or to subjugation by Japan. China, all this time, remained the pariah among the great nations, to be exploited economically and completely defenseless to aggression from any side. China continued to be subjected to the unequal treaties which gave the Westerner in China extraterritorial rights, immune to the power of Chinese law. These treaties were not abrogated until this year. Chinese customs were collected by foreign officials, her rivers patrolled by foreign gunboats, her great ports turned into colonies for the management of Chinese industry, labor, and trade. Well, today, the Cairo Declaration proposes to reverse the course of a century's history and substitute victimized China for aggressive Japan as the dominant power in the East. Today, China is accepted as the leading Far Eastern power on a basis of equality with the great powers of the West. On paper, it's a triumph hardly equaled in its suddenness in the history of the modern world. Morally, it's a vindication of the virtues and qualities of the most populous and one of the oldest among the nations, a nation with one of the greatest civilizations in the world, 
a country whose 400 odd million peasants, vigorous, hard-working and capable of incredible sacrifice, are fired with the idea of freedom. A strong and democratic China would be a tremendous stabilizing force in the eastern half of the world. As guardian of peace and security in the east, it would have to assume a grave responsibility and trust. But the responsibility will have to be shared. It will be a long time before China as a power can stand alone. She will require the close friendship of Russia, whose Asiatic interests are great. She will need our help in keeping the Pacific at peace, and before that, in achieving internal unity, which is still far from complete. And that will mean a revolutionary change in our attitude towards the problems of the East. It is we who will have to police the Pacific for a long time to come. It is we who will have to maintain the bases to be wrested from Japan and to defend them with a navy and air force of superior strength. We and China, at either end of the Pacific, with the friendly cooperation of Russia and Great Britain, will have the job of bringing and guaranteeing self-government and prosperity to the millions of Asiatic and Pacific peoples whose long domination by the white races has paved the way to the easy aggressions of Japan. That, and nothing less, is the implication of the uh, Cairo decisions. We are still waiting for details about the conference at Tehran between Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt. All we know is the bare announcement from Moscow that the three men have met. At the time of the Moscow conference, near the end of October, I said this. When the top men actually meet, we shall know that the conference has been a success. That moment is now. We do know that basic agreements reached at Moscow came up to expectations and maybe more. But on the basis of this understanding, much else will have to be settled. There is the question of Russia's relations with Poland, quite apart from the territorial question which has been postponed by consent. In other words, it will be allowed to settle itself. There is the question of Turkey, or to be precise, the Turkish Straits which have been a bone of Russian contention since Catherine the Great. During the last war, Russia was promised Constantinople and the Straits. She lost her chance, as she lost much else, by going communist and falling out with the Allies. Turkey, then, was on the German side. Today, when she seems about ready to climb off the fence on our side, does it not seem imperative that some sort of understanding is reached? Here, at any rate, is one of the thorny problems of the war. Finally, of course, there is the question of Russia's plans in the Far East, which in part may have been answered at Cairo. In any case, if it did come up at Tehran, we shall not be told for a very good reason. What we shall be told will not be merely for our ears, but chiefly for the big ears of the watchful waiters in Tokyo and Berlin. The best hope of the future as of this date lies not so much in these international declarations, but in the persons of the leaders themselves, and in the fact that they have achieved such unity of purpose as they have done. There is one thing these four men have in common. They all came to power in a world that was big with change. Three of them are the inheritors of social revolutions which they must guide into an ordered course. They are strong men. They have weathered terrific political storms. They are men of destiny, true leaders of this turbulent time. We hope it will not be possible five or fifty years hence to make them appear ridiculous like the so-called Big Four of Munich or futile like the Big Four at Versailles. Good night. You have been listening to Caesar Searchinger, whom we have presented in cooperation with the American Historical Association. Next Saturday, Caesar Searchinger will be back with another story behind the headlines. The story behind the headlines is a public service feature 
and has originated in New York. 